is the Oz Media Report with me, Dan Barrett. For the past week, I've been thinking a lot about the issue of deplatforming people in Australia. This is where platforms like Facebook or Twitter, for example, might remove an account held by a controversial figure to prevent them from being able to spread toxic or dangerous ideas through their services. A very obvious example of this was the US right-wing rabble-rouser Milo Yiannopoulos. He was a key voice in the incredibly toxic Gamergate controversy, and Yiannopoulos was banned from Twitter in 2016, and a couple of years later on Facebook. What it did is it removes Yiannopoulos from his audience, and they quickly start moving on elsewhere. Now, of course, it's not just social platforms that could see one deplatformed. People could be stopped from making paid public speeches. There's been incidents where credit card companies have stopped taking payments from groups that have been deemed hateful. TV show appearances can be cancelled, etc., etc. In Australia, though, we don't really talk about deplatforming as much. The occasional figure will be criticised from very online, politically charged voices who make calls to deplatform, but it doesn't really happen to the same degree you hear about internationally. Why is that? This past week, there were some questions about media appearances by the controversial former TV chef Pete Evans. Those calls, however, seem mostly confined to spaces like Twitter. This got me interested. And so, this week, we chat with the very online Josh Taylor about this. And later in the podcast, we take a look at the launch of a new youth-focused TV channel, Ten Shake. Why does the network launch a linear broadcast TV channel that targets the exact same market who are busy getting their entertainment from elsewhere, like Netflix, video games, having an active social life? Steve Malk from the TV Black Box podcast joins us to talk through some of the business decisions that led to such a launch. But first, deplatforming in Australia. We live in a precarious time. A global pandemic has this week passed 1 million deaths. The rise of the far right has been a global concern. And technology platforms now give us access to all manner of extreme opinions. Press record and you can start spouting your own dangerous opinions if you like. Overseas, there's been calls for people with dangerous opinions to be removed from the public space. But we don't really do that much in Australia. Is it that our dangerous ideas just aren't dangerous enough? Is the reach of our most toxic voices less than one finds internationally? Josh Taylor is a journalist from The Guardian, and he's incredibly interested in the cross between technology, the media, and politics, which makes him a perfect person to talk to about this. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Now, I want to start this conversation by asking you why Australians don't really seem to deplatform people in the same way we hear about, say, from the US, for example. Am I wrong on that? Am I maybe overlooking a few censored voices? I think it mainly has to do with the media makeup here. I think a lot of it is the fact that a lot of our media tends to thrive on outrage. And so if you if you often find that, and there's just so much, there's just so much, I guess, 24-hour TV as well. You've got ABC, Sky News, and then you've got the breakfast shows doing 7-9. There seems to be a trend, particularly with, with um, sort of the far-right speakers, with the, if they get deplatformed, or, you know, just not allowed on UK TV um, or US TV, they tend to find an audience in Australia. And I think that is largely because I, I think Sky News is probably an over an overrepresented portion of, of the media that, that, you know, is always looking for these people to come on and talk and, and it's often for free. Um, and then Channel 7 and Channel 9 equally, I think, um, definitely have these people on who um, are basically there to just argue with each other and it, you know, makes good TV and then... It, they say something outrageous, it makes a new cycle and then they punt them off and then that person goes on to another station and then it's sort of a self, self-perpetuating self prophecy. I don't I don't think we've, yeah, we, we've not really any had anyone who's been successfully deplatformed, except if you count like Yasmin Abdel-Magid, so, which is kind of the reverse of what we're talking about a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Like, Pauline Hanson's probably an interesting one where she got kind of deplatformed from the Today Show earlier in the year, but... 
Not really, because she just popped up on Channel 7, I guess, the next day. So it's hard to say that she's been deplatformed as much as just D9 for a short time period, at least. Breakfast shows in particular go through these phases of where they they take the moral high ground saying we're not going to have, you know, Pauline Hanson on after the latest outrageous thing she had or like what with what happened with Channel 7 last year where Koshi asked her a couple of hard questions and then she just refused to go on and then instead of on nine because their, their competitive nature seems to overrule their, um, their morality a little bit, I guess, that they're um, willing to, you know, let bygones be bygones and, and just basically keep these people. I think Pauline Hanson is an interesting case because she is a senator. So there is an argument there that she's re- representing roughly 10% of the population. But it's worth remembering that part of the reason why she got back in there in the first place is because she was put on these shows and given a platform and allowed to build a profile that eventually got her back into parliament. Yeah, I mean, she was deplatformed. Well, she wasn't really deplatformed as much as the Australian populace deplatformed her from being a senator for a while, but it didn't stop the broadcasters <laughs> from putting her up there. No, no. And she she basically tuned, uh, you know, fine-tuned the outrage debate that she would always foster whenever she talked. And then the, I guess the breakfast shows kind of fed off on that because they were obviously benefiting from it, generating controversy. And she was rebuilding her public profile to a point where people were like, oh yeah, she speaks common sense. She speaks for the Queenslanders and they obviously re-elected her. So I think, yeah, she's an interesting case. There's been very, I, I can't really explain why there's been so few the ones who sort of seem to get deplatformed, so to speak, were never really, you know, all that around in any way. It's like it's never really been a huge um, thing here compared to other parts of the world. Yeah, it kind of feels like the Australian market maybe sort of chooses the people that they want to back and the people they want to tear down to the expense of what the audience actually thinks. So Yasmin, obviously someone that the media decided they wanted to tear down to the point where she fled overseas really to, I guess, maintain a decent life. Uh, Pauline gets put on TV just consistently and regardless of people actually sort of shouting for her to be removed, it just never really happened. And so I'm wondering, like, what's different about Australia, just maybe more broadly outside of the couple of figureheads that do either get sort of teared up or, you know, put on the air. As people in Australia, we may be prone to calling people dickheads a little bit more and just getting on with it. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably definitely the case. I think there's probably just an undercurrent in, in media hasn't really reckoned with what deep platforming actually looks like in practice we're still very much tied into the idea of outrage like outrage content for the sake of outrage and i mean you only have to like the 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 most the closest we've had to a a de-platforming in recent times is alan jones and that was through the you know the campaign against his advertisers on 2gb but Mm. then he popped up got i think he's got a column in the telegraph he's he's on sky news now four nights a week so was it really that successful in, uh, in the meantime, he's, he had more outrages than anyone else in the media history, as far as I can remember, but has just survived it all. I think everyone often talks about, you know, this cancel culture now, but I don't think that that it's that thing. Like, I think I think probably the the probably the biggest thing is that I, I, I still think we're probably a little bit behind our media counterparts overseas where we don't realise that. I mean, you can look at the Pete Evans stories this week where media hasn't really come to grips with the fact that you can't just report what people like Pete Evans say uncritically, you actually need to put it in context and, and you know, not not basically give him a platform w- without any sort of justification or any sort of understanding of what's going on there or, or sort of explaining um, why what he's saying is wrong or challenging him on the things he says. So I think about situations like Pete Evans right now where Australia is in a very fortunate position where we've got COVID, not exactly necessarily licked, but, you know, things are definitely in a much better place than you find a lot of other countries around the world. Like where it, it seems like COVID's subsiding in terms of numbers, 
And then you've got people like Pete Evans, who's obviously stoking a strong sort of anti-mask sentiment and all the other stuff that's kind of um, sitting mm-hmm. alongside with that. And I wonder, do we actually even need to be worried about voices like Pete Evans? So I find him concerning, and he's got a strong following amongst the health and wellness QAnon brigade, but it doesn't really seem to be extending beyond that. So is it necessarily something we need to be worried about? Or can we just sort of maybe look the other way on this kind of thing? Well, yes and no. So I feel like the issue with Pete Evans at the moment is that he that he him and the media, particularly like the Daily Mail and um, news.com.au and a few other places that, that are reporting on almost everything that he says on Instagram, they're kind of a perpetual like loop. They're feeding off each other. So Daily, Daily Mail is obviously getting a lot of traffic from what he's saying. He can then, you know, post that on his Twitter account and, oh, or his Instagram account and say, look at these, this mainstream media, look at how they're reporting me and then we'll build his profile as a result. Um, I do think that uh, in this instance, this is one of the ones where I think that um, the social media companies are actually having a little bit of an impact because um, I know with Pete Evans now, you can't actually, on Instagram, you can't actually search for him. Um, he, You actually have to search for his full username before it will pop up in your search results, even if you're following him. So they're, they're subtly deplatforming in themselves, but... I don't think media has taken responsibility for. I guess on the broader question, I think I mean, that sort of sounds a bit more yeah. like shadow banning rather than deplatforming. Yeah, it's more yeah, it's more shadow banning, but it's basically designed to limit his reach a little bit. I guess on the broader question, I think yeah, definitely we can see that through the very limited attended protests, and I guess the the fact that you know we there was there were the spate of Karen videos where people didn't want to wear masks and things like that, but. It was very much the minority of, of people. Like most people do not pay attention to that. I think, I think it, I, I, I often struggle with this when I, when I try to decide when to report on what pe- people like Pete Evans do, because you've got to look at their reach and their engagement online in particular before you figure out whether they do. He doesn't particularly like he, he has like, I think a million and a half followers or something like that, which is, which means that some, some of the stuff is worth reporting it, but he's just so prolific that it's difficult to keep up with. And, and it's interesting watching him intersect with other parts of the media. Like when he, when he goes on podcasts, when he interviews with the daily telegraph, when he goes, talks to Alan Jones, things like that. I think that's when it becomes worth reporting. Um, but less so sort of the, the day to day, look what Bill Gates is doing now, stuff that he posts on his feed. My just natural instinct is that we should be very concerned about him, but then just like a bit of logic seems to kick in saying that concerns are maybe a bit overblown and like awareness about activated armaments may have shot off like a billion percent. But outside of that, I think people just kind of, his reach just isn't really as meaningful as I'm concerned that it might be. I don't think he's, he has quite a large following. And I think that his influence probably stems into the whole, how the wellness community has been sucked into the whole QAnon thing. And I think Mm. that that's probably a, a larger thing worth I, I don't think i don't think we can ignore pete evans but at the same time i don't think it's worth anyone's while stressing about every single thing that he does that's that's kind of the, the attitude i've taken to it and that, and that goes broadly for a lot of the conspiracy theory stuff that um has generated around covid um over the past few months because you often reach this point where you go i could spend my entire career <laughs> trying to debunk every single thing that i see online and and you know try to prove it but there, there's often that balancing act like the, the mere act of debunking stuff can probably draw attention to stuff that you that people might not have been aware of in the first place so you've always got to really think about the balance of it and that's like that's something that's constantly running through my head when i when i think about you know am i going to try and see what these people are doing how, how big are they following how how much more likely am i going to be contributing to it so it's always a balance like um it's a similar stuff where you see some of the crazy stuff said on sky news yeah just stuff like that where you just go am i giving this a larger platform than than it otherwise would have got by trying to refute what they're saying 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously as a journalist, you feel a sense of responsibility there. I'm thinking, and I didn't mean to spend so much time thinking about Pete Evans, but, you know, here we are. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about, like, obviously we saw two uh, major sort of moments in the last week where Pete Evans was given a platform. So, uh, first of all, was a fairly extensive feature in the Daily Telegraph. The other one was a, I think it was the half-hour interview on Ticker TV, which is a streaming video platform that we talked about on last week's podcast. I kind of feel like there's a responsibility if you're going to feature someone like Pete Evans that you need to provide a balance or at least a sense of high-quality medical advice than your guest is providing. And I do feel that both of those examples previously failed in regards to that. But what responsibility do you think media have in making sure that the information that's being provided by someone like Pete Evans, where... I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the idea of deplatforming a Pete Evans because I feel that people obviously want to hear what he has to say, but maybe there's a responsibility just to balance out his words with something that's actually a little bit more, um, I don't want to say meaningful, but a bit more helpful, I guess, for a media consumer. I guess the other way to look at it is like no one is owed a platform. Like by putting Pete Evans on your podcast or in your newspaper, what are people actually learning? What are they actually getting out of it? They're All they're getting is his lines fed back to like his audience without any challenge to it. I think I think the problem with those particular interviews from what I've seen in them, I haven't, um, I, I don't think I've listened to the podcast, but I saw reports of it and I, I read the um, the Daily Telegraph story. A lot of the stuff he, he said went unchallenged and it seemed to me that the interviewers were really unprepared for the, some of the stuff that he was going to come out with. And I think if you're going to go into a situation with that, like with someone who is going to make these wild claims, um, which I don't think you should go into in the first <laughs> place, but if you do, you should research the person that you're looking into and not just try to elicit, you know, provocative responses that will, will make a good clickbait headline, make a good podcast, but will ultimately just mean that he's just allowed, been allowed to get his message across without actually having any sort of proper look at what he's saying and, and whether he's assessing it. I think, I think with Pete Evans in particular, he will just immediately always fall back to, you know, go back and do your research, which is, which is a classic QAnon thing to say. But mm. I think, you know, these people could probably be better prepared than they were. And I mean, it's not like he was really going to any new territory. Like a lot of it was greatest hits kind of business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's Bill Gates vaccines, you know, hoax, masks, Dr. Fauci, all the, all the usual stuff. So I, yeah, I, it, it, I'm finding it the way to tackle people who are spreading misinformation. You're never going like you, you can never really argue with them directly. It's always the people on the periphery that you want to try and convince the people who may not be hundred percent convinced about what they're trying to be, to be spread. And I don't think that arguing with someone like Pete Evans or highlighting him saying, look at these crazy views is, is necessarily going to achieve the objective that they're trying to achieve. Yeah, it's certainly it's not in a public interest. Um, so I guess maybe the question sort of maybe just wind this conversation out with is uh, Bill Gates, as a member of the media, how much does he pay you for your views? <laughs> oh, I wish I was getting some of that Bill Gates money. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, actually, I saw something he said the other day on uh, what Pete Evans said on his Instagram the other day where, where we reported the re- reportage of him in the Daily Telegraph where he was like, Where's the where's the Guardian getting its money from? And I was just thinking, um, readers, because <laughs> we're pretty much readers like funded at the moment. So look at for your conspiracy there, Pete. <laughs> yeah, I think the Guardian's been pretty open over the years about where it's getting its money from, whether it's trusts yeah. or whether it's from reader contributions. Yeah, it's. I think it's like particularly with um, certain um, initiatives, it's all published on the website. We're pretty transparent about it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Josh Taylor, thank you very much. I do appreciate the chat, and hopefully neither of us get deplatformed anytime soon. Oh, we can only hope. It's only so long before anyone's cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, thanks so much. No worries. And now for something completely different, television. 
This week has seen the launch of a brand new TV channel in Australia on broadcast TV. It's called Ten Shake. Personally, and I suspect many of you listening may feel the exact same way, I found that I've got next to no interest in this channel at all. A decade ago, a channel with South Park, some random MTV shows, some Comedy Central, that's definitely something I'd be keen to check out. But these days, the amount of broadcast TV I watch is practically non-existent. I watch Jeopardy on SBS Viceland most weeknights, and actually that's about it. Everything else I watch is on demand. Linear, over-the-air broadcast TV viewership is diving off a cliff in 2020. So why is it that Ten's launching a new channel, especially one that's aimed at the exact same broadcast never audience that are mostly watching Netflix? I have questions and thoughts about all of this, so joining me to try and process them all is rival TV commentator and identified louse and scoundrel, Steve Malk. Okay, Steve, before we get too far into this, I guess maybe the content is the big question to get through here. Just run us through what sort of content can people expect from Ten Shake? Dan, they can expect, look, a, a great smattering of Viacom CBS content, uh, stuff that maybe has found a life elsewhere, uh, but certainly during the day, it's all kids. So we're talking about Nickelodeon content, we're talking about animated cartoon feature stuff, all of those sorts of things. And then into the night, we'll see stuff that has played out on MTV, stuff that has played out on their uh, comedy assets, all of it kind of doing that 50-50 thing, almost like um, ABC Kids slash Comedy. Okay, so I get a little bit nervous when I talk about Viacom CBS content in Australia because you mm-hmm. and I, we, we know our TV. We are well across that. And you talk to media people and they know because they're in meetings with Viacom CBS people, they generally have a good feel for what's Viacom CBS product and what isn't. Even when we use brands like Nickelodeon, unless you're a Foxtel viewer and unless you're a Foxtel viewer who happens to have had like little ones around the house, you probably don't mm-hmm. know exactly what that is. So like, what are some marquee Nickelodeon shows at the moment? What are the premium sort of MTV titles that might be making their way over? Sure. Look, in uh, an MTV, let's go to the night stuff first. Yeah, sure. We're really talking about um, everything that replaced music on MTV. (laughs) Uh, So right now it's stuff like Catfish, um, which is ostensibly a reverse dating show where they hunt out people who pretend to be somebody else in a relationship where for some reason the people haven't met. Yeah. Um, Teen Teen Mom Australia and the the Teen Mom franchise. So uh, an you would have to say it's an obdoc, but not really. Looking at young ladies who have had children with or without partners and how they are surviving life. Um, and I've made it sound far more highbrow than it actually is. Yeah, um, that that sounds very serious, like docu series, as opposed to reality trash. Which and look, that's not a judgment I'm placing on it, but you know, it's kind of what it is. No, no, that's what it is. Absolutely. Um, and then you've got Charlotte Crosby, who has you know found life through, um, I think she was from Geordie Shore, X on the Beach or something, and you know, more MTV kind of franchises just spilling out this, you know, tattoo shows and, and all of those kinds of things, along with Comedy Central roasts, um, both the actual roasts themselves and now what ostensibly is a, a competitive reality show where comedians are involved competing to become roast members it's kind of weird that's the roast battle is that right yeah yeah uh so daily show with trevor noah will be one of the titles as well do you know if that will be fresh episodes direct from the us or how does that necessarily play out because of course uh, daily show is a show that currently runs on the comedy central branded service currently streaming through fetch tv as well so do you know if that's impacted yes uh well it's not impacted in that they're still maintaining separation but absolutely uh 10 shake is going to be giving us new trevor noah as as quickly as they can get it 
Yeah, also New South Park. Yes, in, and, and in fact, even just this week, Dan, the uh, pandemic, special pandemic episode of South Park, uh, ending its long relationship with SBS, appearing only on Ten Shake. Yeah. Now, do you have any inside word on the end of the terminated deal with uh, SBS? I mean, I should know these are my former colleagues, but I haven't really asked the question. <laughs> my, my understanding is that um, effectively SBS didn't have the chance to renew it. It was just done. Okay. I mean, this also makes sense. So we are talking about the launch of Tenshake, and this is going to factor into what else I want to talk to you about here. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. Viacom CBS bought out Channel 10 a couple of years ago now, and this is kind of the first sort of major step we're seeing with the merging of key Viacom CBS assets with Channel 10 as a organization. So obviously it had been a partnership with the launch of 11 back in the day, but that was pre-ownership. That was just a business arrangement that had been struck. We've had the launch of what was branded as 10 All Access in Australia. It was a bit half-hearted though. It doesn't really feel like it's a major brand launch. 10 Shake, however, with such a heavy emphasis on Viacom CBS product, it very much feels like this is actually like that first sort of strike where they're saying, look, we've got a partnership. Let's pull this together. But I guess maybe the question I want to ask before we start talking about that partnership too much is maybe just a bit more about Tenshake. And the question that's in my mind really is, why does this channel exist? So there's already so many multi-channels. There is already so many viewing options. Why does Channel 10 think that an additional channel like this is what's going to hook the punters? It's a really cheap value proposition for 10 to take this content and to play it out as a, you know an additional multi-channel. From a a ratings perspective, it allows them those precious little point of percents that build their audience share, particularly as they are hunting uh, out in the the TV ratings land for the valuable, air quotes, under 50s demo. Okay, Um, so so they're trying to hunt into that. So explain this. So for people who aren't necessarily ratings vultures like you are, what is the benefit for them to be able to say, we have a larger share of the viewership across this broad demographic? So when they talk about the share, they're talking about all the people that are watching Channel 10, all the people that are watching 10, I'm struggling to think of the name of the channels right now, uh, 10 Boss, 10 Peach. Like when they're looking 10 at- Bold. Sorry, 10 Bold, 10 boss, not Boss. Sorry, the legal uh, ramifications of that magazine <laughs> issue. But no, no, so we're talking about the suite of channels. So they're talking about their share across all those channels versus the share of all of Channel 9's channels and all of Channel 7's channels. What does this do? Does this kind of essentially take away a couple of the viewers that might be watching some Channel 9 stuff and some Channel 7 stuff to give Channel 10 that little bit of an extra bump? Is that what we're talking about there? Yeah, look, they're they're trying to really build their proposition to the advertising market that if you want to hit younger people under 50s that watch television, you'll come to 10 because this is where we are, we're growing that audience. As we've discussed, you know, sort of independently ourselves, Dan, we know that the free-to-air broadcast market is aging. And so for a network like 10 to say, hey, advertising people, if you want to advertise to this valuable under 50 sort of demographic, come to us because we've got them spread across our suite of channels, whereas seven and nine who, look, both are, are sort of trying to lift their game and, and buy into that um, territory. This is 10, who, at least around sort of the year 2000, that early sort of 2000s new millennium, marked clearly in the sand that this is who that they were after and have what, while they've gone away from it, are trying very hard to come back to that. And that's what strikes me as a little bit funny, because obviously you look at this demographic, these are younger people under the age of 50, generally a bit more tech mm-hmm. literate than um, older people. And you have to wonder, yep. like, surely most of this audience is already owned by Netflix. 
what's the value for Channel 10 in launching a channel that's catering towards that under 50 market as opposed to skewing a little bit older and say taking on 7.2? So 7.2 is a multi-channel with a lot of yes. more British uh, shows, but definitely sort of skews quite a bit older. I'm thinking about Viacom CBS products. So the reason this channel exists is because they've got access to fairly cheap content they can bring over as part of this corporate mm-hmm. partnership, bring the synergies on board. You know, there's lots of reasons as to why this content yes. specifically is being chosen for the new channel. But also, I think about Viacom CBS, they do two things well. They do this youth content fairly well and traditionally have via their cable channels in the US. Mm-hmm. But then also, they skew to older viewers remarkably well with a lot of the content that we see on CBS and then some of their archive content. Think about library titles like Magnum PI and Murder, She Rose mm. and all these classic shows. I kind of feel you throw them onto a broadcast channel. It's probably a bit of an audience for it. Isn't necessarily going to be a smaller audience than... 10 shakes going to have i'm not sure there probably is like you're probably looking at a similar viewership for it so why go young and not go older with a shameless bid to take on seven two you're very right dan they could absolutely pick up magnum murder she wrote all of that stuff and dump it onto a 10 peach or a 10 bold alongside endless repeats of csi and new episodes of that kind of content and go happy days here we are uh, as much as anything i think it's like like you kind of leveraged in that and, and your earlier statement a lot of this content that is on Ten Shake hasn't really ever been seen in the free-to-air market. It's only ever existed in subscription television in Australia. It feels new when it comes out in that regard. So while we know, as an example, Teen Mom Australia aired on MTV, uh, on Fetch and, and Foxtel, I think it was nearly two years ago. And this is its first free-to-air airing. Um, when it comes out, I think it started, was part of Sunday night's launch for 10 Shake. Okay, so I'm thinking Channel 10, it's a precarious time to launch a new channel. I mean, you think about the market right now, mm-hmm. like you've got TV networks where media punters are talking about the fact that it's probably not too long until one of the commercial channels ends up falling. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of getting to the point where that viewership is dropping to that, that sort of, I, I don't call it a sweet spot because that's certainly not the uh, positive impression I want to give upon this. But it is reaching that sort of point of equilibrium between the value of continuing broadcasting versus selling all of your assets and uh, giving the very valuable spectrum that the government owns sort of back to them. At a certain point, they're going to mm. say, look, this, which they get for free, which they get for free. But at a certain point, the government's going to look at it saying, hey, look, you're broadcasting to such a small number of viewers versus the amount of money we can get for selling the spectrum to oh, yeah. telcos and you know, there is that point yes. where the government's going to have to look at it saying, no, no, there is actually value here. And then pressure starts being applied. So like that future is not that far away. So it's interesting to see a channel being launched in this kind of a market. And so my question when I think about the landscape issues is I think, well, what's the future of Channel 10? Where's this? And when I think about 10 as well, 10's in a unique position where it's a US owner. It's a US owner who's making very big inroads into digital right now. Not only do they mm-hmm. have Paramount Plus launching in 2021, <laughs> which is, yes. I think, probably a fairly substantial service launching into our market. Like, it should I'm, be, yes. I'm very enthused about it. Uh, they've also got, and they haven't really talked about this too much in terms of an Australian context, but they've ter- certainly talked about this in terms of an international context. They've got their Pluto TV service, which is mm. streaming channels, just channels upon channels upon channels of very cheap content that they've just put in a linear stream service looks and feels just like Foxtel, only with content that's maybe just a little bit more questionable and repeated a lot more often. (laughs) But even so, it's still engaging. Like, there's a lot of interesting stuff on there. And when you're just channel surfing around looking for something to watch, 
there's always going to be something on these 60 or 70 channels of just nonsense that's going to strike your fancy. So I think about that. I think about Paramount Plus with that premium content. And then I think about Channel 10 with this uh, similar proposition of linear channels. What is the future of 10 sitting amongst the future of Viacom CBS? Is it as relevant to them as Paramount and the uh, Pluto TV platform? Like, what are your thoughts here? Oh, look, more no than yes, as it being more important. Um, mind you, Dan, you seem to think about 10 a lot. Uh, oh, no, the, I do. The, the like, interest- 80% of my thoughts every day is about what Channel 10 are doing because they are the most interesting uh, broadcaster in Australia, not necessarily from mm-hmm. the content they're broadcasting because, quite frankly, I haven't really found myself watching 10 for some time now. I'm not a huge linear viewer anywhere. I think I'm part of this younger viewership who are moving on yeah. to like streaming on-demand platforms. But I think about this overseas viewership and I'm obsessed with Viacom CBS because it's a very interesting company right now. And I just kind of think like all the excitement in the Australian market is firmly here on that Channel 10 Viacom energy hotspot. Yep. And they're in a really unique position compared to 7 and 9 who are both publicly listed companies, 10 privately owned mm. for the first time in a long time. Uh, which gives them some freedom. It also means that they have access because they're owned by a media company, a media bloody monster Mm. out of the US, like you rightly pointed out, they have far cheaper access to a raft of content. So the the addition of throwing another uh, multi-channel here in Australia, 10 Shake, into the mix um, won't have cost 10 heaps. It will have cost money, don't get me wrong, and they're after advertisers, they want to have them involved in that network sorry in that channel as much as across the network but it's not as expensive as say a nine or a seven going to you know an nbc or whoever and saying hey you guys let's start a multi-channel um and how are we going to put content and do all those sorts of things onto it i agree that um 10 is a part of viacom cbs's strategy but it is not the first thing they think of when they wake up uh because australia is a small a small market and certainly a shrinking free-to-air market, whereas they've got, you know, the North America, 11 billion people or whatever it is that watches there, plus their international deals. And the fact that, as you spoke about, Paramount Plus is about to drop. And given the content they've been delivering to CBS All Access already, plus the stuff that we know is already hinted at landing on Paramount Plus, that's going to be a really interesting shake. Sorry, that's a bad choice of words. Um, <laughs> you know, when it lands in Australia, as to what that does, not only to the streaming services, but to TENS audience full stop. Yeah. I mean, obviously the ramifications are that their biggest output is the Showtime content, which is being taken from Stan and making its way over to Paramount. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have a yes. new service that's being beefed up with all that content, you've also got a weakened Stan who's going to be in the market with a lot less premium content. Oh, well, yes, they certainly lose the the Showtime library and any of the new content they were hanging their hat on. They do keep to the uh, the seasonal uh, runs of shows that they've initiated or, or were you know initiated as a part of their original agreement. Those shows um, are all aging though. Have, like these are shows like Billions, which is definitely yeah. nearing the end of its run, surely. For sure, and and even down to stuff like the Circus, which is you know an obdoc that's ostensibly week to week about the American political situation, and you would have thought. Dan, that that had well passed its shelf life, and yet here we are. Um, yeah, 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 but look, the circus, too. which is absolutely one of the things I look forward to most in the week, and look, I'll be honest, is the one thing that really has me renewing my stand subscription on a regular basis. The circus, yeah. like if Trump loses in just a couple of weeks' time, I think it's, what, 36 days as we record this? Something, something like yeah. that. It's not too far off. 
if he loses, then really the circus is around until January, maybe a little bit about the transition period. But after that, like, there's no viewership for the circus. Like, that show vanishes. Without, without being a conspiracy theorist, Dan, that indeed uh, leans heavily on the fact that Trump will transition out of the presidency should he lose. Um, all, all of the marks on the wall suggest that he's not going to do that very quietly. Um, <laughs> Stan are trying to, to bolster their library by making deals with NBC and, and Peacock, um, their new streaming service and all of those sorts of places. However, yeah, but come on. the no, nobody subs- content that is dropping out. Nobody is subscribing for Brand New World. I've seen the first few episodes of it. Nobody's oh, no. talking this up. Now, look, and, and they, will, they will hope it is, but this is the knock-on effect of making deals with streaming services that ostensibly are extensions of, you know, network television or cable networks in the US. You know, where, where am I prioritising, again, making a deal with HBO versus HBO Max? We know that Foxtel have both, but Stan, we're in the bidding to try and get that content. There's some big risks in saying, oh, no, no, I want HBO Max content over HBO now. Give it three to four to five years, I think that's a very different question. And for Stan to get in on the ground floor with Peacock now helps them, but they also have the capacity that they shoot themselves in the foot as they have with the Showtime deal that's now defunct and Paramount Plus about to launch. Have they not just gotten people's appetites whetted for that kind of content that now is available somewhere else? Well, the industry scuttlebutt's always been that the Peacock deal that uh, that Stan has just signed is effectively a limited-term contract with the idea that Peacock will be launching in international markets sooner than later. But we are getting a bold move. We are getting away from the ten shake of it all, and yes. I just want to leave you with just this final question. And we're getting very big and very bold in discussion of ten shake. But you used the phrase earlier about Australia shrinking market. It's a Essentially, as much as we're obviously attached to the Australian market, look, we live here. This is where all of our stuff is. Mm-hmm. As much as we're interested in the Australian market, the reality is this is a very large overseas business. This is a company which may end up being bought out by a larger company in the not-too-distant future. That's also okay. where the industry discussion is going. Like, we don't quite know exactly what's going to happen there. Surely, Channel 10 becomes a smaller and smaller player. The further that we get along within, you know, the changing nature of the ecosystem that is streaming video right now, two to three years yeah. from now, is Channel 10 maybe the first one to fall when right now it looks like it's maybe the most secure? That's a great question, Dan. I mean, I, I agree. We, we talked pre- previously about the fact that just prior to the Viacom CBS, you know, reconsumption or, or takeover of 10, that it looked like the writing was on the wall for 10 then. And in the time since... Seven are in a pretty precarious financial position now that unless, you know, Kerry Stokes keeps holding them up, they're in, they're in some real danger there. Um, how does 10 see this play? Look, I think that they, of all of the networks, um, are probably in the best position to pivot uh, and, and, and see a streaming uh, outcome as their major or priority kind of delivery mechanism, um, which would be in itself a pretty amazing thing um, whether it survives as the 10 branded stuff that we know, or it brings on some other name or that in 10 years time, we only talk about Paramount Plus is where we see and hear, you know, that kind of content. Who knows? Look, these are exciting times ahead. Like literally I'm excited by this. This is fascinating mm. stuff, but Steve Malk, thank you very much for your time. And thanks for being part of the Oz Media Report. My pleasure, Dan. That's it for another week. I'll be back next week with another Oz Media Report. If you've got thoughts, comments, or just want to say hello, drop me an email. 
dan at ozmedia.report. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't use Apple Podcasts, maybe just share the podcast with a friend who might be interested. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Mm-hmm.